The Mississippi River. I've always been um, kind of enthralled with, with rivers. Um, just something I like to read about. We talked about humble beginnings this morning, even with the Bethlehem candle. Uh, the Mississippi River has a humble beginning. At its headwaters in northern Minnesota, it's about 18 feet wide and anywhere from a foot to three feet deep. You can walk across it pretty easily there in the Itasca State Park up in Minnesota. But it changes as it comes south, obviously. If you take the length of the Mississippi and you combine it with the tributaries, the primary tributaries that come into it, which are the Missouri and the Ohio rivers, it's the third longest river system in the entire world. And the, the drainage basin for the Mississippi River, actually there are 32 states and two Canadian provinces that drain into the Mississippi River Basin. So almost 45% of the continental United States drains into the water system that makes up the Mississippi River. It's an amazing thing. And I've, I've just put it because if you see the shaded area on the picture there, you see how all the way from the western part of North Carolina, all the way up into the, the Mideastern states, all of that drainage flows down into the Mississippi River in one way or another, through the Tennessee River, the Arkansas River, the Ohio River, uh, the Red River further down south in Texas. It's, it's an amazing thing to see. The sediment that washes down is literally life-giving. It is life-giving. So I use that as an, as an illustration of all that water flowing down, flowing down from the north, from the east and the west. Ultimately, all of that water, all of it, goes through Baton Rouge or New Orleans and New Orleans and flows out there into the Gulf of Mexico, ultimately into the Atlantic Ocean or the Caribbean Sea. It all flows down through those cities into that vast ocean. I use that to illustrate a biblical truth. And that biblical truth is this, that all of God's promises, one of my favorite Volumes, and I encourage you to pick up a copy of this. It's tremendous biblical help. A study help is a little, it's, it's not a small two-volume set that, that Pastor Mark Dever wrote. One is a summary of the Old Testament entitled Promises Made, and the other is a summary of the New Testament entitled Promises Kept. Promises Made and Promises Kept. We, we talk about this Bible a lot. And there's a lot of people in church and out of church who can tell you things about the Bible. Now, the question I would have for you this morning is this. Can you tell me not things about the Bible? Can you tell me what this is about? Can you tell me what this book, this Bible is about? And, and I would suggest to you, it's not an original thought for me. It comes from commentators and other pastors and things that I've read and seen and studied over the years. What this book ultimately is about is about God's promises. But I would say it's about more than just his promises, plural. It's about one promise. It's about the promise that he made in the book of Genesis to bless the creation that he has made. And that that blessing ultimately that comes upon that broken, sin-sick, dark, depraved creation that fell there in Genesis chapter 3. 
Ultimately, that promise for blessing is not set aside. It is not shelved someplace. It still stands. And that promise for God to bless is a promise that ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. That's what the book is about. And those promises of God, like these tributaries that flow into the Mississippi, are so vast and so different. There is that promise that he made in Genesis to bless the creation that he had made. There's the promise later on in Genesis to crush the head of the deceiver of the serpent. There's the promise in Genesis that he made through Noah, pictured in the ark, of a salvation to come. A place to flee from the wrath and the flood of God's judgment. There is the promise, of course, in Genesis chapter 12. To Abraham, to Abram, to this man, this old man on the backside of nowhere. That through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And that promise to his son, Isaac. And that promise to his son, Jacob. And those promises continue to flow down through the Old Testament. Pictured and prophesied to in one way or another. Until, like New Orleans, or like Baton Rouge, they funnel through one place, one person. And I believe that funnel, that point, is what we see here in Second Samuel chapter 7. One commentator says, The most important of those links that link all of those promises together, right? All of those Old Testament promises that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 find there, as the King James says, their yea and their amen in Jesus. All those promises made that are ultimately fulfilled in Christ ultimately link up in David. And, and one writer, Woodhouse, says the most important of those links is King David. In one sense, he says, David is the central human figure in the Bible. The link between Abraham and Jesus. So when we come to Second Samuel chapter 7, it is a perfect, I love it, how the Lord just works it out providentially that as we're you know expositionally working our way through the scriptures one book at a time one chapter at a time one passage at a time sometimes one verse at a time we come to this chapter this part of the word during this time of the year it's amazing how God does that we don't plan it I mean heck I had I had two sermons planned out of First, second Samuel chapter seven. And I told JT a few minutes ago, it's probably going to be three. I won't get very far today. So our planning is not that great. And yet here we are looking at the fulfillment, looking at the promise, looking at how all of this flows together. So let's read the first portion of second Samuel chapter seven. Jason did a great job last week bringing us through 2 Samuel chapter 6. 
if if he had had his way, and looking back, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Brother, that was a lot to cover. You know, you you should have just said, "I'll finish it next week." We'd have been okay with that, but you didn't know that then. So um, there was a lot to cover. But as as with a lot of this narrative in Samuel, first and second Samuel, things are not necessarily not necessarily in in chronological order. However, chapter 6 does precede chapter 7. It's clear to see that. And it's important that the narrator has placed it in that, in that context. He's put it in that place. And all of what we saw in, in, in chapter 6 of David bringing the ark, which is the, the symbol, if you will, of the very presence of God, that God is with his people now. He is there dwelling among them as he has previously done. And that God has made all of these promises. And it's interesting that God had promised to Abram that one of his descendants would be the means by which the whole world would be blessed. And here it is that David's wife, Michael, she makes that decision and she is no longer in line to even be a part of that promise. She would be childless because she opposed God's king. And so here we come to chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go, tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all of this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this. It's 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 wider and deeper and more mysterious in so many ways uh, than we could ever begin to to begin to try to walk through or stumble through. But Lord, we just pray that your spirit would um, bring this word to life in each and every heart that's here. God, that just as you promised to plant your people in a land, you would take this word and plant it in hearts. God, that uh, life would come through Christ. And I pray that in his name. Amen. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. All of them find their yes in him. The significance of what I've just read cannot be overstated. This is called by many the pinnacle of the Old Testament. Now, there's a lot of places. There's a lot of mountain peaks in that range, right? But many call this section the most important passage in the Old Testament. And I understand why. As I have said, it's the link that brings everything together when we read the whole account of God's redemptive plan that's given for us in Scripture. It's, it's the link that brings everything together from Genesis through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all the way through all the prophets. It's the link that brings us to understanding what we see in Matthew chapter 1 in verse 1 when Jesus is introduced to us as the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's the link that brings us to the last chapter of the Bible in Revelation when Jesus refers to himself as the son of David, without this chapter, none of that makes a lick of sense. None of that makes any sense to us if we don't have this chapter before us. And so in many ways, I, I see why people would say, why, why teachers would tell us, this is, this is the highlight, this is the high point in the Old Testament. Now there may be others as we continue to work our way through the scriptures, we'll go, oh, this is the high point. But for now, this is it, okay? This is it. And so I just want to jump right in, and, and we'll see how far we can get. There has been a time lapse. There's been a time difference, obviously, between what transpires in chapter 6 and what transpires in chapter 7. And some commentators that say it could be as long as 15 or 20 years between the time that David brought the ark into Jerusalem and the time that he and, and Nathan, you know, it's a nighttime setting. Maybe after dinner, they're sitting out on the balcony of his palace. You know, they're, they're drinking their coffee. They're looking out over the city. And I don't know exactly what's going on here, but as, as Nathan and David sit there and they look out over the city, it says the king lived in his house. And the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies. And as he sits there and looks out over the city, as he recollects and thinks on all that God has done for him and how God's presence is here, this, this enters into his mind. I live in a palace and the ark is sitting in a tent. I'm in a mansion and God is in a camper. Now, 
this, this doesn't make sense to David. And it's a reasonable assumption. It's a reasonable ambition that he has. The ark has been brought in. His enemies have been laid down temporarily. Everything is, is well in David's life and in the life of his people. I was reading earlier this week in the Psalm, Psalm 116, verse 7 says, Return, O soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Maybe that's the theme, that's the song that's echoing through David's mind as he sits here on this night and looks out over the city. But notice something. He's not called David. Do you see what the text says? Three times. The king lived in his house in verse 1. The king said to Nathan the prophet in verse 2. And Nathan said to the king in verse 3. David is referred to this way to just remind us that he has established. God has promised and he's kept that promise in establishing David on the throne. He has put his king where he wants him. And he has put the king's enemies out of his way. He's at rest, it says, from all of his surrounding enemies. That word rest will come up again in just a few minutes. It's not the word for shalom. It's not the word for Sabbath that we see. It's, it's literally, it's quiet. All the turmoil and all that's gone on in David's life, it's just, he can... Take a breath. It's quiet. It is good. It is good. His enemies have put down. But notice something about that rest. (laughs) It is not his doing. The Lord had given him rest from all of his. The Lord had given it. The Lord had won it. God had promised to do it. And he did it. Okay? So even here, before we see the big promise and the big picture, in this small part, God has made a promise and he has kept it. And so in the quiet and in the peace of that rooftop, wherever it was they're sitting, he looks out across the city, he looks down and maybe he sees that tabernacle that by now is three or four hundred years old. I don't know what kind of tattering a tent takes over that period of time, but David sees a problem. He sees him in a house and he sees the ark in a tent and literally the presence of God is what's symbolized there. And he says... I need to do something about that. I mean, if David is anything, he's what? He's a man of initiative. He's a doer. And here, with all his resources and all of his initiative, he's going to do something about it. And he wants to fix it. And Nathan is, is, Nathan is going to be seen now through the rest of what we read in these next three chapters, he's going to be an important part of David's life. He's referred to by some commentators and teachers as, as David's pastor. So here's David and his pastor sitting there talking about the needs and what's going on. And here David is like any pastor who is sitting in his office when this wealthy man walks in and says, Preacher, here's something I think would be a good idea for the church and here's the check to do it. And the preacher says, great, let's get the building permit and go to work. And that's what Nathan says here. All right. David says, it's not right that I'm in this house and God's in a tent. And Nathan basically says, go for it, David. Go for it. And again, one commentator points out that they didn't really pray about it. 
Doesn't seem to be a whole lot of discussion about it. David wants to do something. Nathan thinks it's a good idea. And they proceed with it. But God has something else in mind. Here's the point that's going to be made all throughout this chapter in this first part. God's kingdom, God's plan of salvation, God's redemptive work, it is all of God, not of us. God doesn't need our checks. He doesn't need our ideas. However good they are, God will do it according to his plan, his purposes, his way. In his time. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, Nathan hears a word from the Lord, as the prophets of the Old Testament do. And after the word of the Lord, one commentator said, and he went and withdrew his building permit request. Because now that's not on the front burner. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, here, go tell my servant David. So here we're seeing that what God sees and what David sees are two very different things. God sees his king on the throne. Three times we saw that in those first two verses. But David also sees, excuse me, God also sees David not just as a king, but what does he refer to David as here? This is significant. Go and tell my servant David. Now all of the sudden David The king of Israel has been elevated up into some pretty rare air. Because those who were referred to as God, by God in the Old Testament as servants, where God calls someone his servant, you can maybe count them on one hand depending on how you keep count. God calls Abraham his servant in Genesis chapter 26. He calls Moses his servant. In Exodus chapter 14 and then later on. He calls Job his servant. When Satan comes and says, you know, I want to I want to do this in Job's life. And God says to him, have you considered my servant Job? He calls Isaiah his servant. And then he also calls Israel, Jacob, in the book of Isaiah, he calls Israel the nation his servant. And then, again, the count would maybe vary a little bit because the servant of the Lord whom Isaiah writes about repetitively in the middle and latter portion of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah chapter 53, the Lord Jesus. So, for David to be referred to as the servant of the Lord is significant in that God esteems him as such, and it then tells us what David's real role is, right? David is not king to take care of David. David is not even really king in one sense to take care of Israel, although that's a solemn commitment that God has given him, but he is there to serve God. And in serving God, he will serve God's people. And in serving God, he will take care of God's purposes and plans. So God sees his servant. And God sees this about his servant. He needs to have his perspective changed. He needs to understand some things about how God works. And you know what's kind of a point of application here? And I don't, I don't even really have this in my list of applications, but take note of this. 
the only way David would know what it is that God is thinking and what it is that God wants and what it is that God sees is if God tells him. If God tells him. And that's the only way we know. Our reasoning is nowhere compared to God's revelation. And if God doesn't reveal it to us, we are in the dark. So David gets a revelation from God through God's prophet. And God saw, okay, David, you need to, you need to see what I'm seeing and hear what I'm... Now, what's kind of weird about this in one way, remember, we've seen David get information from God before. He's inquired of God, should I go attack the Philistines? And, and God said, go attack the Philistines. We're not told how God said that. We're not told how God gave David direction in a lot of previous passages. Here, we're told. The word of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet, and the word of the Lord came through the prophet to David. Just as the word of the Lord has come to us through the prophets and through the apostles, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and we have it. So, David got that because God revealed it to him. Now, look at what God tells him. David wants, excuse me, I keep doing that. It's not, I'm, David and God are right here together, you know, and I, so if I get them mixed up and don't correct it, you can come and tell me. I think you messed that up, Gerald, okay? Susan's in the nursery today. I could count on her to do that. I could count on her to do that from the front row during the middle of it, but I'm not saying you have the freedom to do that, but if you want to, that's okay, okay? This is, other than God's speech, if you will, on Mount Sinai. Other than that one, this is the longest speech that we have from God in the Old Testament. This is a very big deal. And here's what God begins to say to David through the prophet in verse 4. The word of the Lord came to Nathan, and here's what he said. And it's a rhetorical question. It's, it's almost like God is being a little comical, if you will. You, David, want to build me a house? I mean, the emphasis is there on the pronoun. You, for me? No. No. Well, why would you want to build me a house, David? Number one, I haven't told you to build me a house. I've never told anybody else to build me a house. And he says, I have not lived in a house. And so the emphasis on the question there of you, David, you're the one to do that? Now we know, right? We do know that later on God will say, yes, build a place of worship. Build a house. But it will not be David. We'll, we'll see that later on. But the question here is not whether or not it's going to happen. It's you, David, doing that for me? David, you're not the one to do this. You're not the one that's going to, to build this, this place of worship for me. But more importantly than, than the emphasis on that is that it tells us so much about God here. Look at what it says. I have been on the move. From the day I brought Israel out of Egypt, I'm on the move, David. And I'm in a tent. And I'm in a tent with my people wherever my people are. I moved with the people of Israel, it said. And I did not speak a word to any of the judges, any of the people I called to shepherd my people. 
asking them about building me a house. Here's, here's, here's your systematic theology lesson for the day. God is transcendent and he is imminent. To say that God is transcendent is to say that he is not so much high like up there and we're down here. There's an element of that. But to say that God is transcendent is to say that, that he is so different from us in one sense. That in his holiness and in his heavenly dignity, if you will, in that arena that we see God depicted in in the scripture so often, that he is, he is so far above us and different from us that he is sovereign over everything that he has created. And in that over us, as in sovereign and in control and ordering all things, that he is above us, but yet he is imminent. He is, he is with us at the same time. I love the way Jason emphasized that last week with the, with the name for Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's this picture that we have here. God is imminent, but he is, he is also transcendent. Some say the word could be better said incarnational, right? We understand what the incarnation is. That's what we're celebrating here during the Advent. That God took on human form. And as Paul says in Philippians, left all of the transcendent glory of heaven and came down here with us. And not just came down here with us, but came as a slave, as a servant to give his life for us. So God is incarnational. He said, I came down, David, and went with my people through Egypt. I came down, David, and went with my people through the Red Sea. I came down, David, and I went with my people all the way through the wilderness. I came down, David, and I walked with my people in the midst of all of their wandering and their homelessness and their pain. Our God wants to be with his people. Emmanuel. God with us. And so he says to David, I choose to live in a tent. This is, this is, this is who I am. This is who my people are. Now we know part of the promise here is there's a time coming where that's all going to stop. We need to be reminded by God's tent that our houses, our cars, our stuff, our things here, it's just a ratty old canvas tent going to pieces in the scheme of eternity. And God says, there'll be a time when the pilgrimage is over, but it's not yet. So again, just kind of a word of application, just in this part of what he's saying here before he, he gets specific with David right here. There, there are times when the circumstances around us and what we see with our eyes and what we think with our brains and, and even what we see sometimes lining up with portions of God's Word, it seems like this is a no-brainer. I mean, in many ways, it is a no-brainer, David. You're right. You're living in a mansion and God's in a fold-out cox camper. If you don't know what that is, look it up. That's how I took vacations most of my life when I was living with the Glenn and Betty Ann. So it's like, David, you're right. That, that seems not right. But yet, 
They didn't seem to think they needed to pray over it, and they didn't, and God put the brakes on it real quick. So sometimes, as I mentioned in a previous passage, it seems like that's, man, we don't need to pray about that, but really I think we do. Because you know what? God does not ask for our good ideas. And he does not really care about what our initiatives are if they're not his. And what we do to honor God comes from obedience. What we do to honor God comes from obedience to his revealed will and ways in his word. Not just our good ideas. He sets the agenda, not us. So, there's an unexpected rejection to David's good idea. Now look at verse 8. There is this eternal promise that comes. Okay? And I'm only going to get through a portion of this. So he says again in verse 8. So say to my servant David. And notice, thus says the Lord of hosts. The God of heaven's armies. The sovereign God of all the heavenly host is the one speaking this word into the life of his king, into the life of his servant. And he says, David, I want you to think about the past. As you're sitting in your cedar-lined palace, remember where you came from. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. David, I want you to think about what it is that I have done for you in the past. How I have been gracious to you, David. How I have been gracious in calling you. Remember, we don't know without revelation, right? Well, who was it that Samuel wanted to pick out as the king? (laughs) Well, it was David's older, bigger, stronger brothers. Until he got the revelation from God, he didn't know who to anoint. You see, we can look at everything from the external appearance and think it's good, but we need God to show us. So he says, David, I want you to think about my grace to you. My grace to you came and I chose you and I called you out. I took you out of the pasture. I took you from following sheep that you would be prince. And again, that word is significant because prince there is the idea that he is under the authority of the real king who is Yahweh, who is God. So I took you out of the flock Out of the pasture, put you in the palace that you would be prince over my people. I've been faithful to you in the past, David. I've been faithful to you and gracious to you, God, in the way that I have defended you. I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. Now there is a temporal fulfillment of what God is saying here now in David's life. Those enemies are laid down for a while. They will raise their head again. We haven't heard the last of the Philistines. But for now, in this place, God is saying, you have rest from your enemies. I chose you, I called you, I've been with you, I've defended you. And notice what he says next. I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Does that bring anything to mind? Is there anything there that kind of rings a bell? Turn back over to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12:1, the Lord God said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. 
and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, dishonor you. I will dishonor, excuse me, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Once again, that tributary of God's promise to Abram is making its way down through the great river of God's redemptive purposes to this little shepherd boy who is now the king named David. And God is saying to him, I will make your name great, David. Has he done that? Oh, my word. In Christianity? In Judaism? In art? In sculpture, in paintings, in literature, in movies, in books, in poems, in songs. David is one of the most famous people the world has ever known. Yes, God made his name great. And all of this is just a picture of his grace. But there's something important to see in this text and again, it's, it's hard to see in the English translation, but remember how the Hebrew often brackets things. So there's a promise to David that comes now, a picture of God's grace to David that comes here in verses 6, 7, and 8. And then there's a promise to God's people. It says, I've been with you and I cut off your enemies. I will make you a, na- a great name like the name of the great ones. And then in verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel... And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And then he makes this promise to David. So it begins with a promise to David. It ends with a promise to David. But the emphasis is in the middle on his promise and his grace toward his people. God makes promises to David for the sake of God's people. Not just for David's sake. Now David benefits from it. As David's family will. But do you see God's heart for his people? God's heart for those that are called by his name? God's heart for those that believe his promises and trust in him? So God's grace to people Israel is just a picture of how he is working in and through his prince, in and through his servants. And notice what he says first, I will give them a place. And he says, I will give them a place and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. And the word plant is significant. The word plant there, what do you have to do to plant something? I mean, you have to prepare the ground. You have to to dig a hole. You have to carefully put it in there. I mean, there's this picture of God's intentionality. There's this picture of God's intimacy with his people. He's not just sowing seeds. There's a place in the scriptures for that too. But the idea here is that God is planting them. He's, he's putting them. In fact, it echoes back. He promised this back in the book of Exodus. He was speaking to Moses and what Moses would do. And he said, you'll bring them in and I will plant them on. And, and, God is, and Moses is talking about what God is going to do. He said, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So it's this picture of God's people being identified with God in God's place. And God is doing what he needs to do to plant them there. To put them where they belong. God says, I'm going to give you a place. Now, we remember how this story unfolds, right? 
I would invite you, I'm not going to take the time this morning, but I would invite you to go and read Psalm 89. It is a beautiful psalm, and I invite you to read all the rest of it. I only read a portion of it. But the rest of it gets pretty dark because it's this picture of God seemingly coming back on His promise, seemingly renouncing His covenant. It's this picture in the latter part of Psalm 89 of hiding himself from his people. In fact, the psalmist says, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself? How long will your wrath burn? We know that God's promise to David is going to stand regardless of sin, regardless of death, regardless of time. And here that promise of a place is going to stand. A promise of peace. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. God had appointed judges over Israel to govern them, yes, but to protect them and lead them. In fact, that was what Saul was supposed to do. And how did he pan out? Here he says, violent men shall afflict them no more. So the peace that I'm talking about here is is a deeper peace Again, it's not the word shalom. It's the word of just resting, just being able to take a breath. Now, it's not completely gone, this problem, but God sees the long view, right? He sees the end like he sees the beginning. Because our problem is not troubled men, men who come and, and disturb us. I mean, that can be a problem. And that we'd not be disturbed by the violence of those who would afflict us. Yeah, I get it that that's, that's a problem. But our problem is sin and death. You heard it in the video, didn't you? The problem in this world is lostness. Our separation from God. And that apart from God's grace that offers us salvation in Christ, there's nothing that awaits the lost but a devil's hell. And it's by grace that God offers salvation in Jesus. And so this word of of not being troubled or being afflicted, there's complete peace to come, but it's not come yet. And sin and death have been conquered by Christ. But it's a it's a you know, it's one of those promises of God. It's it's not yet, but we have a taste of it. Promise of peace and then the promise of rest, he says, and I will give rest From all your enemies. And the word here is not the word Sabbath rest. It's not the exact same word that was used of God in the Old Testament on the seventh day. But there's a direct connection there. And here's the deal. The Sabbath rest of God that he offers his people is made available to us through the promise that he makes to David. And that promise he makes to David is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and David's son. And, and that theme is going to be developed through the rest of this passage of Scripture. I will give you rest. You know what God just is hung up on? God's just hung up on the security and well-being of His people. The eternal security of His people. The eternal well-being of His people. And as this text points out, and as the record that we have in Scripture points out, that God's promises to us include His promise of discipline, His promise of being a father to us, as we'll see next week. And that His rest 
to be free from this trouble and this affliction, be free from the fear of death and all the consequences of sin that it brings. Let me close by inviting you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews helps us, the, the book of Hebrews helps us see as fully as any other New Testament book how all of these promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus. The promise of the Passover, the promise of a priest, and the promise of rest. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. So God promised his rest to David. He promised his rest to all of his Old Testament covenant people. And he promised his rest to those even as they were wandering through the wilderness. There was a promise of a promised land to come. And he said that promise of entering that rest still stands, the writer says. So let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Why would he say that? Well, because he says those in the Old Testament who heard that promise, the good news came to us just as it did to them, he says in verse 2. But the message they heard was no good to them. It did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The promise of God in the Bible is to bless those who believe. That's... That's what this book is about. So what is it that God asks of us today? What does he ask of you? It's not your good ideas. It's not your initiative. It is to believe. Believe. Believe his promise. That he so loved this world. That he gave his only son. That whoever would believe would not perish, but have life, everlasting life, peace, a place, the fullness of that promise. He doesn't need our initiative and our good ideas. It's not by works that we are saved. It is a gift of God. It's not of anything that we can boast about, Paul says in Ephesians 2. And so the writer of Hebrews just goes on to say that there remains... For some, an opportunity to enter into that rest because of others are an example of those who fail to enter it because they simply did not believe. They did not obey. So the writer of Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Holy Spirit, please open our hearts to hear. Open our hearts to see your great promise. Open our hearts to see that this place here in Roxburgh or in Person County or in the United States, in this world in 2023, is not home. It is temporary. For some of us, it could end in a second. So there awaits a promise. There awaits a place. There awaits a person. Our King, the Lord Jesus, the Son of David. So this week, church, when you go out of here, you can pull out your little Gideon's New Testament there at your desk or your Bible. And if someone walks up, say, I know what this book is about. It's about this season of the year that we're in. It's about God's promise in Christ. Let's pray together. 
Father, I thank you for that promise. I thank you for the promise that's made to David. We look forward to seeing how that's going to unfold in his life and in our lives, in his family and in our families. Lord, in his nation and in our church and in, in our, our, our place here. God, thank you that your promise to Abraham was that those who would be blessed through him are those who believe in that promise. Those who take you at your word and trust. And so I pray, Lord, that if someone here has never trusted in Jesus, if they've never repented of their sin and turned by faith to Christ, that they would do that today and just simply take you at your word, Lord. That if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Your grace washes away the guilt and the penalty of that sin. And we receive the righteousness of Christ and the promise of life in him. And Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, we just pray you'd help us. Lord, restore to us the joy of your salvation. Just remind us again during this season, God, of that great gift that you've given us in Jesus. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.